are listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that exhumes horror films from the past and present for a loving autopsy. Tonight's subject is a slasher sequel. Yes, we are continuing our examination of the Halloween film franchise, and guess who's back? Michael Myers, and indeed we are watching Halloween 4, the return of the aforementioned slasher. And uh, I, of course, am joined by two co-hosts with the most, Michael T. Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Gentlemen, I am so glad we can get back together and uh, hang out with Michael Myers for a while. How are you guys doing, Mike? I'll tell you how I am doing. Did you hear that? Mm. Yeah, that's how I'm doing. That's a tall, frosty Guinness in a bottle. Mm. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. One of the greatest sounds Taste. in the world. Tasty. So, yeah, that's how I'm doing. And Vic? As a counterpoint to that, I'm going to see if you guys can catch this. Mm. Do that, and then and then wait. <sighs> I am uh, uh, I am experimenting with sobriety tonight. What? So I want to apologize. I want to apologize to all of our listeners for my general lack of exuberance, uh, my my cogent <laughs> thought process, my general sense of rationality. Uh, <laughs> the next time we record, uh, I will be back to my uh, my drunken ways. But uh, this just seemed like a it's it's time to just see what reality looks like again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what it sounds like. <laughs> The cat does not agree. The cat, the cat is completely against the idea. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, as am I, for the record. But uh, hey, we'll see how it goes. I'm drinking an old fashioned tonight. Uh, it's mm. yeah, a nice traditional, very uh, basic, manly cocktail. And of course, I do have a beer on deck as well. But it's already poured in the glass, so there won't be sound effects until mm. uh, until beer number two. Uh, I thought my memory, and I guess my memory was false, but uh, was that a la Aliens that I went to it with a bunch of my friends as a uh, birthday party kind of event, because that's kind of what uh, I was doing in my early teens. But um, apparently it came out uh, around Halloween, so and my birthday is in May. So I guess maybe it was just sort of a, uh, a special occasion, slumber party kind of a deal, uh, because yeah, it was released on October 21st, 1988. Um, grossed a mighty $6.8 million uh, on route to a domestic gross of uh, about 17.8 almost. Um, and that made it the fifth best performing film, according to Wikipedia, in the saga. So uh, I remember liking it quite a bit. I believe this was the first um, Halloween movie that I had seen. I don't think I had seen the original yet. And it kind of introduced it to me, and I think it kind of introduced slashers to me as well, because uh, I think I may have mentioned the first uh, Friday the 13th I, I ever saw was The New Blood, which, uh, you know, I'll have to check, but came out around this uh, basic era and point in time, and so I just thought that it was uh, intense and scary, but it did not break my 13-year-old mind, so... Uh, just kind of whetted my appetite, and I came back for more, a lot more. This came out when I was a junior in high school, and for whatever reason, at that point in my life, I became weirdly snobbish about horror. Uh, I think it was because I was way more into uh, like Hellraiser-type things, and I wasn't interested in Friday the 13th part whatever, Halloween part whatever, 
And the only reason that I saw this movie at all was uh, I used to buy weed back in high school from this dude who loved horror sequels. So he would swing by the house to drop off my eighth and he'd have like a video cassette in his hand from Blockbuster. So one day it was uh, Halloween 4. And I will tell you, I remembered nothing, nothing about this movie at all. The best recollection that, could, that I had was I had a distinct memory of a couple of the shots of the, of the stairway that they go up and down to the attic in the house in the second half of the movie. For reasons I can't even fathom, shots of that stairway stayed with me and absolutely zero else. So this is the second time that I've watched this ever in my entire life and in a lot of ways the first because it was a completely fresh experience for me so <laughs> that's <laughs> probably because i was baked out of my mind uh at the time that i watched it the first time too so there it is god wasn't that the worst when you had to hang out with your drug dealer for a while after he sold you drugs what <laughs> <laughs> to do was get the you either wanted to leave or you wanted him to leave and and oh god that was thank god for california I laughed extra hard at Pineapple Express when uh, Seth Rogen is swinging by. He just wants to buy his weed. And James Franco was like, oh, come on, man, hang out. Let's do this. Let's do that. I'm like, I've lived that. <laughs> uh, end of the day, it's not like he wanted to watch like fucking Pokemon movies. You know, he was, you know I, I saw a lot of the later Friday the 13th because of that guy. So, you know, whatever. Oh, so uh, to backtrack on that uh, uh, for a second, I looked it up, and actually, uh, Friday the 13th, The New Blood came out like three days uh, after my birthday. So I mm. saw that, and that, that got me going on Slashers, and then a few months later, uh, around October, uh, Halloween time, I saw this. So uh, I think that one two-point punch definitely had something to do with me uh, doubling back and becoming a, a slasher aficionado. So uh, these these films definitely have a warm spot in my heart in that way, but I don't really recall ever seeing this again either, Mike, for some reason, maybe once within a couple of years on home video, but I don't have a clear memory of uh, seeing it again. So uh, it was also kind of a, a, a trip for me to, to come back and, and look at it after all these years. This is another one where I don't remember exactly the first time I saw it, uh, but I definitely saw it many, many times, almost certainly on home video. Um, I'm doing the math, so I think I was 10 or 11 uh, when this came out, and that really was, and we'll get into this more, but I feel like that was the perfect time to see this because I was at once able to really empathize with the Jamie character. Like, that was the, she was more so than, say, the earlier Halloween movies or, or even really any sort of slasher films up to that point, like... This is about a kid who was just, it was a little bit younger than me, but I was also, especially, you know, seeing it, because this was a, a mainstay on uh, cable, it still runs, as far as I can tell, it runs like crazy on AMC every year. So even as I got just a little bit older and really started to be interested in the the dynamics of the, the teenagers, uh, which is to say the nudity, it really, like, I had a lot of nostalgic feelings watching this. Yeah, I can't tell you exactly when I saw it, but boy, did I remember almost everything about it, including those stairs, Mike. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't know why. Yeah, what, what is it about those shots of those darkened stairway that is so evocative? I'm not sure. Well, you mentioned Danielle Harris there, Vic, and uh, it is kind of mind-blowing to me that she was a, a nine-year-old playing a seven-year-old uh, when this was made, and... 
it's just kind of as someone with a niece now who's you know roughly coming up on six here in a few days um the, the the protagonist of a horror movie and i would say she's a true intrinsic protagonist uh of of this isn't goosebumps and we'll kind of get into where it sort of stands you know philosophically in terms of gore and nudity and the horror genre but this is a real horror movie and our protagonist is a seven-year-old and i think that's just very very unusual and, and strange and and i'm empathetic to somebody that vulnerable and that inexperienced and that, you know, vulnerable and, and should be protect someone who should be protected. And she's having to navigate this, this experience uh, to survive just months older than my niece. I, I just, I think it's believable because she's a, a natural actress with a little bit of experience at this point. Uh, Danielle Harris had been on a soap opera, so she probably had logged a bit of a lot of screen time and was mature beyond her years. Certainly like a lot of uh, young actors are. It's it's just one of the most notable things about this movie to me. It's an assured performance. It did strike me while I was watching it, especially in the latter half of the movie when it comes down to Michael just chasing her and that's it, that I was watching a true final girl. She is a girl. It's a, it's a final <laughs> little little girl. Uh, ordinarily, we, we call these characters final girl, even though they're supposed to be seven, between the ages of 17 and 21, and she's supposed to be seven. Danielle Harris is fantastic in this movie. She is a really accomplished child actor, man. Uh, she really carries this film in a lot of ways. And obviously, since then, has remained a mainstay of the genre. But yeah, she got off to a really, really strong start. I would say that she runs back, rings backwards around Tommy and Lindsay from one. The cast accounts for the things that I appreciate the most about this film, for the most part. I, I think that Donald Pleasance showed up ready to work in a way that I, I'm not even sure I felt like it in two. You know, when we're talking about two, as I mentioned at the time, there's a pervasive, oh, okay, fine, we'll make another one, feel to the to everything about that movie. Whereas this one, uh, right from the get-go, he's uh, really energetic and engaged, and uh, he's finding stuff to do with the lines and the character. If we're going to say that Daniel Harrison and Donald Pleasance are our two most significant characters, I those two actors really fucking brought their A-game. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I, I did hear in the director's commentary, which I'll be referring to uh, here and there, that he was very much up for returning uh, in this role. And, and I think that, yeah, as you said, it's it's obvious his commitment to the part and his enjoyment of uh, dusting off this character. And I think maybe part of it was, you know, because we don't have Jamie Lee Curtis um, and his leading lady is a, is a seven-year-old, uh, the character is seven years old, that it's it's a large part his movie more than than the, than the first movie. And I think maybe he, he stepped up to that challenge as well. Mm-hmm. I would say, too, we'll get into this more, but one of the things that I enjoy about this movie and into the fifth, really the fifth film, is the interactions between him and Michael. There's a weird, I mean, that's something else that separates this, uh, again, especially to a 12-year-old who is digging into horror. I mean, again, Mike, I'm, you know, uh, like John, I think I was kind of in the opposite space from you. Sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> Apparently there's more than one way to skin a cat. The, uh, <laughs> We're going to try them all the while of, Vic is the, on the podcast. The kind of intellectual commentary you can only get from a cat on the darkest <laughs> hour of the 
podcast. Savannah, um, we will get to you. You but, can uh, have your time with the microphone. <laughs> Savannah, Savannah does not agree. <laughs> yeah, we don't have uh, Emily to uh, guest star, so uh, S- Savannah the cat is sitting in that chair, keeping the chair warm for Emily. <laughs> One of the things that I, that really stands out to me about this movie are the interactions between Loomis and Michael and and somehow exploring that relationship, even just a little bit, the small ways that it humanizes Michael. Again, just a little bit of added layers to this. I mean, you think about Friday the 13th, like the, you know, the final chapter, the way that uh, Corey Feldman connects with Jason as, you know, by pretending to be him sort of those moments actually matter. And the, these movies do become parodies of themselves the more that the killers just become sort of killing machines. So I appreciated that they worked those moments in and developed that relationship. And look, that's what gives Donald Pleasant something to do. That's why this performance works as well as it does. In comparing this film to the other films, I suddenly found myself comparing it to the Friday the 13th films. And I'll start by Michael himself. And you referenced him being more human. Well, I think that uh, the director said that he thought of and he wanted the actor to play Michael as an escaped mental patient and not a supernatural entity. So as a, as a mortal, uh, a mortal man. We even have a scene here where we're watching him as a true nightmare boogeyman in a what we find out is a uh, sort of a seven-year-old's precognitive terror and and not reality um even with the you know scenes like that the, the 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 film and the narrative allow us to play with we're still operating under the assumption that the man himself is coming back here to connect with jamie in some way not to kill her specifically he just has no idea how to do that because he's so trapped inside of his own psychosis. And Mustafa Akkad, you know, who um, bought the rights from, uh, you know, Lockstock and Barrel, the franchise belongs to him now. Uh, somewhere in development, Carpenter and Deborah Hill sold it off to him. He was running the show as far as who Michael was uh, from this point forward, and he did not want a version of Michael or a reinvention of Michael. He wanted the exact same character. Uh, especially from the first film. In two, there's a sense of, okay, fine. In three, they made this wild experiment that didn't work out for them either creatively or commercially. So going from two to three to four, you can tell that in, in every way, they're like, this is the first movie as much as we can make it again. They even put it right there in the title, The Return of Michael Myers. Don't worry about it. It's a Michael Myers film. <laughs> he, he, gets, he gets out of a mental institution. Loomis is after him. We finagle a way to get him not only his mask back, but also a, a mechanics coverall outfit. So we, we redress the human doll up, and they bend over completely backwards to make that happen. We have the requisite party of teenagers, and it's Halloween, and it's raining. They're checking all the boxes. They're letting the audience know at every step of the way, remember Halloween? We made one just like it. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do anything weird. Yeah, he doesn't differ in any noticeable way from the Michael of the of the first film. The only really significant difference is the budget, because in the first one, it's uh, clearly a... a you know, $300,000 in 1977, 78 money, which is about 1.2 in today's currency. But I would, you know, 
I looked at the budget, it was about $5 million, and you could see it. And Michael blows up a gas station, there's a car chase, there's gunfire in a significant manner. There's a lot more dollars thrown at this movie than the original. But it's interesting, this isn't a studio picture. It's uh, Canon and uh, Mustafa Akkad. Like, it's it's a, definitely a independent film uh, by standards of the time. Most certainly, but if, if the idea is we're, we're going to make one as close to the first one as possible, but also there's going to be, like, explosions and shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's talk about canon films, right? Like, you got to have explosions. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, so the point that I was, uh, you know, working my way to there uh, in regards to Friday is that that is such a extreme point of departure from Jason Voorhees that Michael Myers doesn't change. Jason changes constantly. I mean, he is only arguably close to the same guy in two movies. I mean, maybe you can say with the zombie period, but like he's very similar in part three and part four, right? But uh, Jason, that is. But Michael Myers, like, as you pointed out, it's like he's wearing the exact same jumpsuit, for God's sake. I mean, the mask ages somewhere along the line, and we can put the Rob Zombie version aside for a minute, but this is an immutable villain, not an ever-evolving villain like Jason. And I think that that's one of the the key points of distinction between the franchises. And it's, you know, you can draw your own conclusions about that, and there's whys and wherefores, but Jason's hallmark is that he's a shapeshifter, sometimes even literally, by the time you get to the New Line one. And Michael Myers is just like, they keep this guy as iconic as Santa Claus. <laughs> I think, I mean, one of the things that I actually noted in this one is I, I didn't like the mask. I felt like that, I mean, again, it's I know it's... Mm-hmm. Same mask, but totally it's, agree. Totally agree. There, yeah, there's something. There's a there's a kind of a puffiness to it, or there's something. Yep. There's something that just doesn't fit quite correct. Um, well, you could go so for I, his whole body if you wanted to. I mean, well, we could get into that. The guy has this weird lumpy body because he's wearing hockey pads under his jumpsuit. Well, I, I watched that documentary, and they changed the stuntman playing Michael halfway through. It's one stuntman when it's bandage head Michael. And uh, a couple of the later school scenes, and then it's a completely different guy the entire rest of the movie. And I noticed that I, I, I liked Bandage Head Michael a lot more in terms of the immutability. I I got really excited for a second. I'm like, oh shit, they actually changed up this character. I I knew that eventually we'd get that mask and jumpsuit back because it's on the fucking poster. But when he first appears, and it's it's kind of like the Michael Myers version of Sackhead Jason where we actually did something new that was still kind of creepy and cool. And I liked the way that the stuntman was standing there in that diner. He actually looks dangerous and imposing and nightmarish. It's just very clearly handed off, and the mask is too loose. It's lumpy. It's weird. It seems a little fat. I can't say that I was a fan of this Michael Myers outside of the bandage head sequences. Well, but the other thing I would say is that what changes about Michael, and this is what I was talking about earlier, Michael does change in some senses, but it has to do with his connections to other people. And again, these, this this movie and the fifth one, what the the you know the driving force is this familial connection and the thing that's that's chasing him, you know, the sort of the the other side of it, his real antagonist is Dr. Loomis, who has this very direct connection to him. If you look at the Friday the 13th movies, Jason changes because his relationship to the people, uh, the, the, the victims that he, whatever group of teenagers he's stalking, you know, there's almost never anything to it. There's never, there's never any relationship to develop there. 
Uh, and so this one, we get the introduction of Jamie. Um, again, we get some more vocal interactions between him and Dr. Loomis. And again, it doesn't have to be much, but just a little bit makes a difference. By the time we get to the fifth one, now we're developing a psychic connection with Jamie. I distinctly remember because it's made such a, an impact on me. A scene where Dr. Loomis almost talks Michael into putting down the knife and coming with him. Those are the things that change. They're actually internal with him, whereas Jason becomes a zombie. So I think there, I think there is an evolution to him. But you're right. It's not the mask. It's it's not the hallmarks. It's not the things that that you put on the poster. Well, it's such a key yep. difference that there's no Loomis in Friday. You know, like there's no character remotely close to that. Maybe that guy, the the brother of the victim from the third movie who shows up in the second movie for a little while, I mean, in the fourth movie, and he knows a few things about Jason, but, I mean, that's it's no, not a comparison. We have, like, such a different storytelling archetype in Loomis, and, you know, for, with Jamie Lee Curtis, for that matter, because, you know, no final girl or even Tommy Jarvis has the, the presence in as many films or, you know, even over the narrative in films that she or he is not in, as we get with Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, character's impact on this film, for example, being the, the mother of the um, protagonist. It's just mm -hmm. weird to me and, and interesting how different they are in those, like, structural ways. This is kind of more of a traditional narrative series in a lot of ways, because, you know, the director in this case... Uh, equated it to a Western, and he saw it kind of as a a tale of a wise man, a prophet in Loomis, and a warrior and the sheriff protecting a vulnerable family from evil, which is a very classical kind of story, where we, we have almost weirdly transgressive, almost non-narrative, non-stories in Friday the 13th, where, like, literally... It's kids partying, and then they are on the run, and they're getting picked off one by one, and somebody survives, and Jason appears to die. And that's that's it. Like, the, the plots are so bare bones. We're somewhere between teen sex comedy and nothing but unrelenting suspense for 90 minutes, culminated by murder after murder. So, not much changes in the Friday films, uh, you know, for a, quite a while in terms of that plot. That's the plot of every single Friday. Whereas these films... They don't change Michael in that evolution that Jason has. Uh, Michael is the immutable anchor point, but then we kind of change the plots and even the sub-sub-genres that each movie is is exploring. Obviously, uh, Halloween 3 being a huge example. But from 3 to 4, I think we have a more fundamental departure from the first two films than Friday really attempted you know, because I think that it's, it is subtle here, but there is a Western in here. There's a family film in here. And I just think the combination of genres is more proficient and steady at the tiller from a directing standpoint than the Friday sequels. There are so many things that are reminiscent of Westerns. And it's interesting that uh, it comes to a film not directed by Carpenter at all, because Carpenter was, right. you know, as very, very vocally has been a huge fan of Westerns. Uh, and in many ways, you know, Sultan Precinct 13 is a derivative of Western, you know, XYZ. Uh, and this one, it, it's really drawing from the Western genre in, in very specific ways. I mean, we have a moment where there's literally like a sheriff sitting in front of a door in a rocking chair with a shotgun in case the bad guy shows up. When Loomis 
sees Bandit Head Michael in that diner. The visuals are kind of drawing on the showdown palette of visuals all the way through this film. And if there's any one thing that kind of chewed on me about this film was the fact that so often the main victim slash protagonists are surrounded by protectors. It's only in very <laughs> slender scenarios in which they're directly threatened by Michael. For the most part, they have this flanks of people around them. But at the same time, uh, what gives this one a different kind of flavor is the characters consistently do things that ordinarily you yell at the screen and slashers about. There's only one scene where a character purposely wanders off alone. For the most part, they stay in groups. There's literally a situation where like, they have a vigilante squad, like in a Western, and uh, they're like, whoa, Michael Myers is in there. Let's go shoot him. And then they look at each other and go, no, it would be smarter to just get in this truck and leave. And they do that. <laughs> they do exactly that. There's like, we're, let, let's just get out of town and let the cops handle it. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> There's like, <laughs> it does give this film kind of its own flavor, which I enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the Western thing, as you said, there's a siege and, you know, these sheriffs with shotguns and whatnot. It's in, in, in a posse. And I think that, that that makes it interesting in a lot of ways. But we, we start with this kind of opening title sequence establishing Halloween tropes. And that kind of reminds me that the Dennis Etchison script that they didn't use, like supposedly had the idea that the town had quit celebrating Halloween and somehow they thought that was going to keep Michael away, which I think would have been interesting to explore. Hmm. Well, I will say the two things that struck me about this opening sequence, A, it is the first Halloween film to eschew the jack-o'-lantern in any form. Yes. And B, it really effectively, just by cross-dissolving between these big wide shots, does an excellent, excellent job of, of using the terrain to establish the mood. Uh, I can't think of, right off the top of my head, another film that so effectively captures the Midwest in autumn and kind of the, the, the looming gray, wet creepiness of just these giant flat plains and these battered farmhouses and skeletal trees and everything. I would say it's comparable to the opening sequence of American Werewolf in London in terms mm -hmm. of using the, the, set, the terrain of the setting and just giving you images of the land in which the movie will take place to establish its, its own mood, which I thought was great. I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's a great opening sequence. Uh, the, the title card image with Halloween for the return of Michael Myers on it has this, you know, pregnant cloud, like storm cloudy rain is in the air, but it's not like big, you know, cliche clouds. It's just sort of the really fine, weird, gray, misty clouds. And it's kind of looming over a big, it's all a farm, which is interesting because you don't really associate the, the series up to this point with that rural of a environment of a milieu, but like we begin with all of these shots of this farm and there's all kinds of Halloween decorations all over this farm that kind of connect the idea of the holiday with this, as you said, very desolate and, and creepy terrain, like as, as uh, sunset uh, approaches. It's just a really nice opening sequence that sets the mood uh, very, very well. Oh, there is a, uh, I have to say, there's a jack-o'-lantern in the scene somewhere. Uh, it's a very minor key, but yeah, like we're getting away from that very 
hey, it's a Halloween movie. Like we have the we run the titles over some kind of jack o' lantern. Like we're we're finally yeah. really departing from that completely uh, mm-hmm. with this one. From there, we get right to this rainy night and uh, this very Silence of the Lambs kind of scenario. Of course, this was uh, before Silence of the Lambs, but uh, maybe not the book, of course. But the uh, people are uh, taking an ambulance to the mental hospital because apparently after 10 years, uh, Michael Myers has been rotting away in one facility and they have to move him to another. So that, of course, is a vulnerable chain of custody situation that's going to present an opportunity for Michael. And I guess this would be a good point to ask, like, why now? So obviously um, he's going to escape tonight, and obviously it's uh, October 30th, which is not really a great time to move this particular prisoner, guys, (laughs) (laughs) in the bureaucracy. It is weird that a lot of the characters are very, very aware of who this guy is, and yet they, they completely eschew that knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> they don't react to it. It's like, well, we have to move him. Should we move him the day before Halloween? What happened <laughs> What happened 10 years ago when we tried doing that? Eh, it'll be fine. <laughs> what, are the, what are the odds? I mean, really? Again, they probably feel safe because he's just been lying there for 10 years. But if anybody talked to Loomis, they would know that this dude lies dormant right up until he's not. I watched him stare at the wall for 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> Unmoving! Yeah, they're they're playing that same card um, from the first one where he's been he goes through these dormant periods that you know stretch for a decade, and in that time, people just you know gradually. I think we touched on this in the past. They just start to think of him as part of the furniture or a vegetable, you know, one of those patients, and they change his classification because I mean it's kind of like a tarantula or anything else. Like if you if you live around it, if you're working. You know, it's your job to be around this this thing, and it never does anything day after day after day. I mean, you're going to be conditioned to kind of think that it's it's never going to do anything, right? Someone in this facility has been changing Michael Myers' adult diaper every day for 10 years. <laughs> Without a mishap. I mean, I'm sure that guy feels as comfortable around Michael as he does, you know, with his easy chair at home. That's the guy who, when they were like, all right, we're going to move him. The only date that's available is the 30th. And he was like, do it. (laughs) Get him out of here. (laughs) I don't want to change his diaper on that day. (laughs) I also, I just want to say, too, when uh, they finally, and, you know, we have the the security guard and some of his dialogue is pretty silly as they get down there. Mm. And when they finally see the, the doctor that's been caring for him. Uh, they're the really caring for him. I really thought like they walked in and in my head, I was like, it's going to be David Cronenberg, right? Mm-hmm. Except it wasn't. And of course, it, it took me a little while to realize that I was, I think I was just projecting Jason X onto this. Um, oh, right, right, right. But yeah. I really okay. like, I, I, I just, I, I wish I could go back in time and tell them, can you guys just get David Cronenberg to play this part? Like, <laughs> yeah. it would have been fun connective tissue between the yeah. series. I am stunned that he wasn't murdered. Ordinarily, a character of this nature is killed. Uh, you know, he's the doubter. He doesn't see the danger. He's a little flippant. He's kind of a dick about Loomis. He even says, well, after we move Michael out of here, it'd be cool if Loomis retired or died. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
to be, to be fair, though, you know that for 10 years, Loomis just keeps showing up going, you've got to chain him up. We should dismember him. Like, I watched him go mad. You know what I mean? He's been, he's been doing his Dr. Loomis thing to this poor, you know, uh, administrative guy for 10 years. Yeah, the difference in this case, though, is when Loomis was ranting and raving at that set of doctors, who also don't die, come to admit, so, okay, forget that. Uh, for 15 years, it's like, okay, the kid went nuts and stabbed his, his sister to death. Okay, that, that's bad. We're, we're generally against that. But it, it feels like a spring broke one time when he was a small child. In comparison, 10 years ago... He slaughtered over a dozen people over the course of an evening. So it's, uh, I, I think that they would give him a lot more weight in this case, but they don't. That's Look, that's true, but at the same time, like seven years in, you know, you're just going, yeah, I know. He's staring through the wall. He's looking at Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It would be funny if we got a scene where Loomis starts to rant and rave and the doctor like holds up his hand and starts flapping his fingers like a mouth <laughs> and starts rip- repeating the same lines along with him because he's heard it so often. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's notable that they don't even have, like, one token security guard on this detail. You know, like, not one guy who's just there to make sure this dude doesn't wake up in the ambulance and kill both of these paramedics or these, you know, these medical personnel, which, of course, is exactly what he does. We get these two white coats who are introduced, and their primary function is to listen to officer exposition in the elevator but when later on, when they're investigating the ambulance crash, they were talking about four people. So apparently, I was actually a little surprised when they got into the back of it. And apparently there, there were two other guys up front. Again, this is a movie where it's not like one guy is driving him all by himself and you're rolling your eyes at the movie going, well, duh, of course he's going to get murdered. Like four people get in that fucking ambulance and they still get killed. They really up the off-screen danger mm-hmm. of character in the first halloween what you see is what you get whereas in this movie when the camera isn't looking at him he can do terminator level mayhem exactly i was about to say that exact thing because we have michael take out an entire gas station um auto garage diner um like he could have gotten a whole short film out of just how he took down this entire place of business and and it kind of seemed like again we don't get anything but the aftermath in this film. Um, it happens off camera, but it, it it doesn't look like it was stealthy and slow. It seems a bit more like he just massacred them without pretense or guile, kind of like Jason and say, Jason takes Manhattan, where you might expect him to march into a diner or a police station. Well, he kind of does. Um, instead of, you know, being that kind of sneak around, watch and strike the unwary sort of a killer. He is on camera. But when it comes to the, – the movie tells us that when we're not watching him, he can do shit like slaughter an entire police station full of armed cops. So well, cops. Well, wait, full, wait, of, wait. full of armed cops. <laughs> and on camera early on what he does that is patently absurd is drive his thumb through the uh, ambulance guy's forehead. That, Wait, what's so absurd about that? I cannot imagine the, the, I mean, that is like a superhuman act, not to mention just a silly uh, uh, way to kill someone. <laughs> uh, like at, at least, you know what I mean? Like embrace the uh, the eyeball gouging of Halloween 3. But it was almost like, they were like no, 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 we can't go over the eyes. We just did that. 
points for originality, right? I mean, if they did carry over something from three, it was to make our antagonist superhumanly strong. Uh, there are, you know, a couple of times when he throttles somebody so hard that their head almost gets ripped off. He gets as, as powerful as Jason, where if he gets his mitts on you, he can just wring you like a dishcloth, and your flesh will suffer for it. I can see I'm on my, I'm on my own on this, but I'm just going to say it. I just thought that was silly. Like, especially for, like, the first kill of the movie, I, I was like, really, this is what I wrote. Thumb through forehead, question yeah. mark, exclamation point, come on. Yeah, I, I I do agree. I think that if we wanted to keep it grounded and creepy in a horror movie, then he would put that thumb to that dude's eye and, and wrung him out like the robot does to that guy in the bed in three. Well, that, I, was, that was way nastier. But, I mean, I thought that this yeah. was – it was shocking and sudden enough, and there's enough actual gore and, you know, penetration of a, of a object. Okay, it's his thumb, but into a guy's head slowly that I thought it – that was one of the more classical kills in this film, which is, you know, not built around uh, kills, you know. So I thought it kind of set the stage and created some tension about what he's capable of doing to somebody that informs and empowers a lot of the more subtle or suspenseful sequences later. That thumb kill was actually a reshoot later on. Oh. They did a, Yeah, they did a screening and the earlier cut was, again, they were trying to adhere as close to the first one as possible. So nearly bloodless, lower body counts, X, Y, Z. And the cards that they were getting back were, eh, it's, it's okay, but, eh, you know, eh. They felt the need to spike it up with yeah. some gonzo deaths. See, so that, that, that to like, me felt like the concession to what we expect from a slasher movie. Yeah, so it, it's like, all right, well, we, we got to juice this thing up. How if he grabs a guy and murders him some really weird way, like shoves his thumb through his forehead or something. And uh, later when he pulls that redneck's head halfway off his body when he's uh, driving the truck, that was a reshoot too. Uh, they needed to juice it some more. And uh, given the fact that we had to do the exact same thing on Killer Party, I totally understand it, man. Well, weren't we just talking about that with uh, Halloween 2, that Carpenter came and added some more gory kills? Uh, he, he, did, yeah. he did the reshoots. So that's pretty common, it looks like. I know they did that on Carpenter's The Fog as well. After the, the initial test screening, they went back and did that. I'm just saying I, there's, a, there's a variety of things they could have used within an ambulance that I wouldn't have pulled me out of it uh, quite quite like that did. I will say that up until that moment, it was relatively grounded. I, I thought that officer exposition was a little broad, but not to a deadly degree. Uh, I thought that the two white coats were a little broad, but not to a deadly degree. I was still kind of coasting off of the cool, moody credit sequence and the rainstorm and everything else. I'm like, okay, you know, we're, we're in for something solid. And I shoves a stun man. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so, but when it comes to the gore and the kills, I have to wonder if, again, they're looking at Friday the 13th and going, man, we got to up this shit. We got to bring it up, man. We got to turn up the dial. Uh, one of the most interesting things about doing this podcast series is to really dig into not only the Halloween films and Friday the 13th films, but to really examine the kind of meta conversation that occurs throughout the, the runs of both franchises as they go along. You can really see them looking at each other, taking ideas, kind of doing their version of things, Tommy Jarvis thing versus uh, the girl and Laurie Strode relationship. Well, let's just uh, 
you know, double back to the what I said at the top, which was uh, which Friday the 13th movie came out the same year? Well, it was The New Blood. So they were way behind in terms of how many Michael Myers movies we've seen by the time this comes out. This is the third Michael Myers movie. And we're talking about the new blood over on the Friday side where he's already a zombie going up against the psychic. So if you want right. to compare like <laughs> how much mileage, yeah. uh, extra mileage Jason has on his tires at this point versus Myers, I mean, it's there's no comparison. And, and you have to think, as you said, that they were checking notes and com- you know, comparing notes and checking up on the Joneses and, and, and what's happening over there. This is not even close to being as gonzo and weird as Friday had been for a couple of movies uh, at this right. point, you know. Friday gets gonzo and goes in new directions and kind of a sine wave that's relatively compact. This one is, the movies are very, very, very grounded, very, very similar, except for three, which is the biggest spike of neither genre, or franchise, I should say. Halloween reacted so much in the other direction after three that they were interested in taking almost zero chances, whereas Friday the 13th never had that or the Halloween three version of a film in their franchise. So they just got weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. The closest closest one was five where it wasn't Jason. And we remember having that conversation when we talked about that movie, that their their reaction was where's Jason. And so like Mm -hmm. they really had to, in part six, you know, get back to where they were before because the reaction to even like a almost similar uh, as similar as can be, sequel without yeah. it happening to be the exact same dude, you know, was reacted to badly by audiences. Back to basics was the mantra. And here we're, we're getting to that point a couple years later, um, chronologically, yeah. but, you know, immediately after a, a failed sequel. But actually, yeah, that was like how many years before was part three? Like it was really dormant for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, whereas uh, Friday's cranking out the sequels. The interesting thing about the difference between Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees is Voorhees gets overtly supernatural, but later. There's a hint of his haunting spirit in 5, but he becomes literally a zombie in 6, whereas Michael Myers, the implication of his supernatural element is almost right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And they, they make that much more explicit, too. But never is he... He's not a zombie, but he just does enough weird shit that you kind of go, God, maybe he is evil personified. You never know. Well, Except his like, invulnerability he, is is supernatural for sure. Whereas, again, three is <laughs> we stole Stonehenge and we're going to blow the heads off of millions of children with a laser that turns your head into snakes. <laughs> it's just so weird to think about how that movie fits into the the franchise because it, it's it's completely forgotten afterwards and there's no setup to it so it's just almost like this weird blip on the radar the only connective tissue and we talked about it on on that podcast was that the movie halloween actually plays on a tv uh at one point you know on halloween night during uh part you know during uh season of the witch so it's it's meta in that way it takes place in our world but yeah, not, but so, not, anyway. but not Michael Myers's world is the point. Right, right. So that's kind of yeah. like saying, what if there was a Friday the Thirteenth movie where Jason didn't even exist? You know, he was either just a movie character or you know not around at all. I mean, that just is such a 
divergence from the timeline that it almost, you know, has to become something that you, you just view separately somehow. So Wes Craven played that card with Freddy seven, the new nightmare, uh, which was probably my favorite Freddy movie outside of the first one. I, I really go one, seven, three, the rest of them. Yeah. I, I think that's probably, that's probably pretty universally agreed on too, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love the meta aspects and that was the last Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie to actually frighten me. I was scared in that theater. I was like, fuck, this is a creepy movie, man. Well, so we'll, anyway. we'll get to Freddy eventually. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, speaking of creepy movies <laughs> or not, depending on your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have someone who's very creeped out. We know for sure, which is our young uh, protagonist, uh, Danielle Harris playing Jamie, which uh, is a direct uh, Jamie Lee Curtis homage uh, in her character name. But she's uh, Laurie Strode's young uh, daughter. And apparently, though I don't remember it being explicitly spelled out, but apparently Laurie has died in a car accident in this timeline. And she's uh, her daughter is uh, being raised by a foster parents. And she has a foster sister who's very pr- uh, protective I don't know what happened to her dad, by the way, maybe um, also killed in this same car accident 11 months ago. They're drunk driving back from the party at the country club. <laughs> <laughs> On Halloween night. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's well, funny. I, I, 11 I, months ago, so it would have been September, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, she said they died 11 months ago. Yeah, yeah. No, it would have been November. No. November they died. Oh, right, right. Yes, of course. I got bumped from the movie. I had to pause it to think about the timeline that comes up in their conversation. So Laurie Strode graduates high school and apparently is married by with, with no, wait a minute. Yeah. She's married and pregnant within three years. So by the time she's 20 years old, she's already had this child and then they raise her until she's six, go to the country club, get drunk, die in a car accident. And then this child now goes to Lori's sister or no, I think she, baby, she babysat this girl or the foster sister, but I don't know mm -hmm, if there's a more direct link. That's right. They do, they do refer to her as foster. Although it did make me laugh when she mentions that Laurie Strode used to babysit her, I would think that after the events of 1978, I would be out of the babysitting business for good, man. Under <laughs> <laughs> any circumstances. Can I, can I also float the possibility that perhaps Jamie Lee Curtis, they killed Ben Tramer's uh, young nephew in, <laughs> in their car accident? <laughs> Uh, it was a Thanksgiving evening, I think. The Tramer family just, it's like the fucking purge. They just lock yeah. themselves in their house. <laughs> Whenever there's a holiday, yeah. He was, <laughs> the kid was in yeah. a pilgrim costume, got creamed. Yeah. Laurie Strode and her beau are sleepy on tryptophan. They drift <laughs> off at the, drift after a heavy Thanksgiving meal, drift off the road, run over Ben Tramer's nephew. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> an explosion this this poor child gets some sad news especially the, the fact that she wasn't invited to the thanksgiving dinner <laughs> she's just sitting at home with a ham sandwich and a cup of soup oh <laughs> uh, well we we do establish that the girl seems to be uh filled with dread and sort of on watch in a way and i think we're gonna see in this very specific hallucination that she has that 
I think they're already, Vic, you alluded to sort of a, a psychic element being introduced in the next movie, but I think we're sort of laying the groundwork for that here. Her image of him is very specific and, and prescient. Yes. Well, and I think, too, I mean, what they're setting up that, that works sort of interestingly as a, a dynamic, as a, a, a tool for generating scares in the movie is they're creating a world in which she doesn't know uh, what's Michael Myers, you know, what's what's real. We don't know what's real, what's her hallucination. And so that gives you a little bit of leeway to keep the scares coming in the first half and give you some creepy imagery, even though, you know, we're still going through the mechanics of getting Michael Myers into his wrecker and his coveralls and his, his mask before we can actually get there. Yeah, I mean, I this, think this, it's very effective at that. This entire aspect reminded me heavily of what's going on in part five. The idea that even when he's not around, he haunts you in dreams. The spirit of Michael Myers is, is around or the evil that inhabits him or vice versa. Obviously, it's due to the family connection. She knows that he's coming to get her way before. And also, how would she know what he looks like mm-hmm. unless he's projecting in some way or else she's having a precognitive sense? Well, it's weird because we give Michael more physical clues you know, clumsily or not, um, to the connection between her and um, his sister, so that he has a more literal trail of breadcrumbs that lead him to his niece. But with her, like, it, yeah, it seems much more all in her tormented uh, subconscious. Well, and I think, too, the other thing that happens, what we get right after this, I I believe, is her conversation with Rachel about, you know, do you, I mean, again, very on the nose, you know, but do you love me like a real sister and this kind of thing. But what they're setting up is, again, one of those elements that I feel like you don't get in a lot of other horror films. And it's like, I'll take it on the nose and I'll take it, you know, even if, if it's not subtle, but drawing this character arc for, you know, Rachel coming to appreciate Jamie as a as a real sister protect her like her real flesh and blood juxtaposing that with this connection that she has with Michael Myers and I will talk about it when we get to the end but I think what you would argue is that this film says that the the connection drawn by the blood is more powerful than the connection between the emotional bond that develops between the two of them over the course of the movie but that's again even sort of clumsily developed or whatever I appreciate that it's in there at all like I think that that matters that helps me invest in these characters yeah I didn't mind the kind of on the nose aspect of that dialogue, given the the age of the character from which it's coming, uh, it's it's clear that she's lost her parents not that long ago. She's still having nightmares. She obviously feels unmoored in some way, and the people that she's around, she's like, "Do you love me? La la la. Will you protect me?" Uh, it also gives those characters a little bit of an arc because, as we see in the next scene with the breakfast, she gets so bent out of shape about the idea of having to babysit this child instead of go on, like, some random-ass fucking date that she you could just as easily push it for one day, but instead she throws a temper tantrum about it. I could definitely see why. So we establish that, even though she says the words, yeah, sure, I love you like a sister, it's fine, but she's still kind of a selfish teenager. So by the time we get to the end of the movie and she's actively racing around, putting her life on the line to save this child, the beats aren't very thorough, but they exist, like you said. Yeah, (laughs) I'll take something over nothing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's not it's not that clunky. I mean, I kind of appreciate that they're not, you know, at the phase of filmmaking where they're trying to make her Juno or something, you know, where everybody is 
ironic and sarcastic and self-referential and, you know, dropping one-liners. Like, it's just a bit on the on the side of being broad and corny and earnest, but not so much that, like, I, it, it doesn't play for me. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with a version of, of Juno that just involves those kinds of teenagers being stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, um, if we had – did we ever – oh, my God. I can't believe I'm having to ask this question. Did we do um, the Friday the 13th remake? Did we, did we cover that one? Um, yes. Okay. Yes, we yes. Well, didn't, yeah. weren't they going for something like that in that movie where, you know, everybody is um, – you know, everybody is a comedic character, you know, intentionally. Um, yeah, well, it, it was a movie that had been, we're talking about the early aughts. So we've already been through the cycle of the 90s where everybody is like a scream character or everyone's been rewritten by Joss Whedon. Exactly. Yeah, so no one can be normal. And um, well, I, in, in that documentary, I'd say, you know, the director was talking about in, in casting this girl, Rachel. He had had to fight for her because he knows the trend in slasher movies that the leads were often very glamorous they were basically you know grabbing these 17 year old modely kind of characters and he's like you know let's go for someone who's a little more grounded she's cute but she didn't just step off the parisian runway she doesn't have that kind of sleekness to her uh she really feels like a really normal midwestern girl i I completely Uh, agree with that the director pointed out in the commentary that these actors could have played their parts as types but they didn't. And I think that's true. There's a lot more texture to these characters than in the Friday films. As he put it, it's not Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they're going for something more authentic. They're not brilliant actors for the most part, but I think that the paradigm that they're all sort of operating under is worthwhile because to me, it makes the movie scarier. If anything, uh, the one character who's definitely playing a type is the cop's daughter, and I, I, yes. again, just and she was cast yeah. as a type too. Doesn't she look like the actress that you were describing in other slasher movies? Yeah, she's enjoyable because I, I like her cattiness, uh, but she's extremely broad. Yeah, um, she reminds I, me of the girl, the blonde girl in uh, not to this extent, but the blonde girl <laughs> in um, the New Blood, the one that is. The, the catty, blonde, uh, manip- icy, manipulative man-eater yeah, yeah, we yeah. enjoyed very much. She also represents just one more data point in this movie where we're underlining. Remember the first one? I would say that in all ways but name, this is what we would these days call a soft reboot. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it, definitely it, fair. It, in this nightmarish scene that Danielle Harris uh, finds herself in, she's sort of being menaced by by Michael Myers in her own bedroom. And uh, there's one great shot. And yeah, it kind of echoes a certain shot in the original, but he sort of sits up alongside of her bed and there's a lightning flash and he just looks cool. And I thought it was a very effective little shot in the midst of Mm -hmm. this sequence. And she calls him the nightmare man. And she knows that he's coming for her. And again, it's the psychic element, not as overt as in the new blood, but I think that they're sort of um, laying groundwork there. And it's it, it's a very cool uh, little scene, uh, even though I generally hate this type of thing. I don't like dream sequences in movies that no. 
you know, just don't serve any purpose other than to shoehorn in the necessary scare at this point in the running time. Right. I fully agree with that. Because I, as soon as he appears in a room, I'm like, eh, it's a dream sequence. Because, yeah, it's it's weightless in terms of stakes. Mm-hmm. It's just giving you images and hoping that something makes you jump a little bit. But we know that it's a dream sequence. No one's in any danger. It's not Freddy Krueger. Well, um, the, the one thing is, though, that we've we've established enough weirdness and mystery about his supernatural provenance to a degree that there's maybe an iota of of feeling that you know not that she's gonna buy it here but just Mm -hmm. that you know there's something at work here there's some uh evil evil weight to this this torment that she's experiencing i would have almost liked it if she called him the boogeyman and the foster parents are like where did you hear that and she's like oh that's just my name for him Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm Yeah, you have the foster parents like dashing in and kind of cool slow-mo to find her in the closet hiding, you know, just locked in her own mind. And it's, you get the feeling maybe this wasn't the first time that that's happened. In this production, the cast and crew were extremely protective of Daniela Harris. Uh, she, she mentions in the interviews that she repeatedly brings up the fact that everyone was looking out for her, that she was very protected. They're very kid gloves, almost literally, with young actress and slasher movie of this nature. But for that scene, yeah, she, she wasn't getting it, so the director just threw her in the closet and shut off the lights, and she flipped out, and that's how they got the shot. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It's like, it's like <laughs> good acting sometimes requires just a little torture. You know, this is the kind of shit that you encounter when you foster kids. Like, you are bringing in kids who are, the reason they're with you is because they've been through some kind of trauma, and it and it's hard, and they're, you know what I mean, and you don't know exactly how they're going to react to it, if they're going to be in the closet. What you said about, about, you get the sense that this has happened before, I have exactly that sense, and I think that that's something that, again, is probably weirdly true to life, uh, that gives us a, a little bit of authenticity, not to mention, obviously, her performance. Child's Play 2 really carved that out. I did find this breakfast scene interesting because mm-hmm. I, I swiftly came to find her parents somewhat unctuous a little bit. They're sympathetic when they're rushing to save her from a nightmare. But in their daylight hours, when we see them in their more natural habitat, the dad gets his tie dunked into a cup of coffee. And his immediate reaction is to spin around and look at his wife and give her an accusatory glare like it was her fault. <laughs> and, and, then, and, and then bitch at her about the replacement. Oh, yeah, there's another tie in there. Why, why, this tie, that tie, ah! Because he's got a big meeting at 10.30 with this other guy. And then later on, they go out for a big dinner with his boss. There is that kind of, you know, he's trying to ask kiss his way up the ladder for, like, bluntly materialistic reasons. They they even go so far to say, well, depending on how this dinner goes, we're either going to be going to a tropical location or... Yet again, we're going to be going to Cleveland for two weeks to see your family. And it's like, what's there? We're going to Cleveland to see your family, man. <laughs> oh, uh, Mike, did you notice the Cleveland connection in this film? You've obviously shot a, a movie in Cleveland, but apparently, like, the screenwriters from Cleveland and... Like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of Cleveland connections in the in the making of this film. Even, I think, Dwight mm-hmm. H. Little, the, uh, the director... Born in Cleveland, Ohio. So, uh, you know, Cleveland, it's, it was the hotbed of uh, horror before even death metal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping to really put Cleveland on the map, man. <laughs> You're bringing it back. 
<laughs> I, I think I'm just going to say this. The Cleveland connection, I, th- that seems like it could be a, a, maybe a, a follow-up to the French connection or something. Yes. Um, yes. You know, we can start. We can all start working on that. Yeah, speaking of Dwight Little, uh, kind of a journeyman, uh, gets a lot of TV, TV work uh, even to this day. So uh, he's had a, you know, a, a pretty strong career, even if, you know, there aren't a lot of major features on his resume. The guy who really popped on IMDb when I looked this movie up was the DP, because the, this is the first movie that we don't have the great Dean Cundy. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was trying to, I'm like, okay, who did they get, get to replace him? And this dude is shooting like Transformers movies, man. Whoa. He, he is, yeah, he is a massive, massive A-plus list resume. This was obviously an earlier film for him, but not the first. Interesting. But, John, I'm sorry, I just want to point out that you, you did see that Dwight Little uh, directed uh, Murder at 1600. So, <laughs> uh, yes, John, a, a Copelson film. For our listeners' benefit, John and I met working at the the producer of Murdered 1600. I, you say that's not a major Hollywood film. You're right, but still. <laughs> well, he also, by the way, uh, Little directed an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. And just last night, I had crippling insomnia, and I was just watching stuff on YouTube, um, mindless stuff like, hey, I'd like to see the opening sequence or the title sequence from Freddy's Nightmares again. And so I queued that up and it was uh, it was a walk down memory lane for sure. Terrible well, show, I saw- but I, I did love it, you know, for, you know, just being starved in an ocean of emptiness without much genre stuff when I was a kid on television. Uh, he's got a deep bench of genre television directing, but I did notice that he also directed uh, Anaconda to the Blood Orchid, uh, which mm-hmm. didn't Bill Massa do some, yeah. some drafts on that one? Our, our friend Bill Massa definitely is one of the credited screenwriters on, I think he's credited, he definitely did a draft of it. By the way, uh, Mike, where does Peter Lyons Collister, the DP, uh, hail from? I don't know. Why don't you just take you a gonna- guess? Is it from Cleveland? Yes. <laughs> so these guys were the Cleveland connection. It's wow. Just, yeah. Synchronicity, guys. It's getting uh, scary. So anyways. Holy cow. Um, this is probably a good time for me to crack a beer. I only have the one beer. I, I didn't stock up. My cupboards are bare. Um, really? I've just got the one beer and like a little bit of Diet Coke and rum to last me this whole episode. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pace yourself, up. man. I'm on strict rations. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, Starvation yeah. rations. The romantic sound of me opening a diet A&W root beer. Uh, that is not a root uh, beer, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> you're without the roots. It's just beer. So yeah, this, uh, this scene has this kind of, uh, you know, bitchy teenager vibe that you, um, or beat that you mentioned, Mike, but I, I think that, and I'm not saying that you disagree, but like, to me, that was pretty relatable teenage behavior here. I understand her. She, she there was a, a, a freaking babysitter. She was off the hook, but like the girl like broke her ankle at the ice rink last night and now she's drafted and has to you know, not see the guy that she's crazy about. I mean, that is a pretty dramatic event in the life of a teenager, no? I look at that scenario and I see a phone call going, hey, listen, I know we're going to hang out, but I have to babysit the kid. Uh, can we hang out tomorrow? The adult version However, of However, yeah, you can yeah. sense that she knows, that she senses that this guy, because he is a teenage douchebag, is, uh-huh. you know, she just lost her spot on the dance card, right? And, and he's going to go 
hang out with the sheriff's daughter who's hotter than she is. Now, I mean, I think she's still kind of shocked apparently when she finds that out for sure. But I mean, I think oh, there's just sort of a, a risk of that happening, you know, when you're in this culture that she's, she's it, in. She's excited about this date because she thinks that he's going to make a commitment of some kind. And she mm-hmm. immediately goes to wedding, children, grandchildren. Like she puts that on the table. She's 17. And at the same time, we've just learned in dialogue that Laurie Strode apparently had a kid by the time she was 20. So my point is, in Haddonfield, Illinois, you get hitched early and you reproduce often. Honestly, in Haddonfield, <laughs> like, you've got a population to keep up. Like, those those kids are dropping yes. like flies. I mean, yes. It's, it's yes. not as bad as Springfield, <laughs> but it's bad. <laughs> yeah, the Strodes are just, they're driving around like maniacs running over kids. Like. Yeah, they have a half more babies policy in Haddonfield, Illinois, because I, and otherwise, who is going to play for the Huskers? I ask you this. <laughs> <laughs> they won't be able to field all 11 yeah. if Michael Myers keeps showing up and murdering everybody. The Haddonfield Huskers want you to take that kind of money. Oh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, we actually get a, uh, we get the team name of the local high school, and it is, in fact, the Haddonfield Huskers. I, I forgot that thing. Another interesting detail that I picked up on is when we get an ECU of when we're back in the hospital, they're typing up something about Michael. And we notice that his middle initial is M. So it's Michael M. Myers, which means that his nickname is M. M&M? <laughs> Triple his, M. Is it his favorite candy? He's bigger than Eminem. He's triple M. He's he's M cubed. I'd like to see him freestyle rap. It's actually, it, it stands for it stands, the M is for Michelle. It's Michael Michelle Myers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, and I hate to get serious for a second, but back to this Jason and Michael comparison and thinking about just who he is. Like now, Michael is not quite in the same category. But there aren't they both kind of stunted adolescents in a lot of ways. I mean, there's still a child within both of these characters, very literally, as we see in Jason uh, Takes Manhattan. Michael is far more malevolent in in many ways than Jason ever was because he was not ever called, and I'm just quoting a movie, folks, a frightened Mm -hmm. retard at any stage of his development. But there, there is still, and Rob Zombie played this up, but it's here in the early films, sort of an innocence and an unsubtlety, a black sheep quality to Michael that he... I don't know. It makes me wonder, is this part of why outsiders, you know, teenagers, anyone who just feels a little different tends to like horror and slashers specifically, you know, perhaps at some point in our lives or forever, we can relate to these characters, these sort of stunted beings that yearn to be a part of what they cannot And yet they genuinely hate it, too, and wish to destroy it. I mean, we can all relate to, you know, the popular kids, the bullies, the thugs, the the beautiful people that ran the school, and everything was so easy for them, and they were so natural, and maybe we were a little uncomfortable or felt out of place or, um, you know, just not the same as, as the herd. And I think that that's just something, it's a deeply unhealthy reaction to universal feelings, but I think maybe that's part of the appeal of characters like Jason and Michael in that like they, they cannot function in society and they, they just sort of operate outside of it. And as I say that, I have a a horrible, horrible thought that 
it's not in any way analogous to being a school shooter or any kind of uh, active shooter or in real life. But I think that in a healthier and more innocent pre-Columbine time, I think perhaps these films might have represented somewhat of a, a, a safety valve for those type of thoughts and, and now just the, the grim, horrible, you know, loss of innocence that we're in an age where people actually just act out these, these impulses. And, and, and that's really tragic. Not to get liberal arts grad school thesis paper, but I'm pretty convinced that the reason that the horror genre fell into such a deep ghetto in, in terms of its repu- cinematic reputation is there was this period of time when it was perceived as entertainment for 15-year-old boys in which they can cathartically exercise their darker impulses, that we have this giant galoot could go around and kill the girls who weren't fucking them. Because they were weirdos. And the guys yeah. that were fucking them. Yeah, exactly. Leavened only by the fact that 100% of the time the protagonist was female. And it's only Halloween carries it in a consistent manner that we show up at all to any degree for the protagonist, though. We're buying the ticket to see a big weirdo murder people. We don't really care about Nancy Car- uh, Nancy, from- <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan. Kerrigan, I know. Uh, Nancy <laughs> Like, we, we like Laurie, but without Laurie, we still watch the movie. And I think it wasn't until the late, mid-90s when we got Scream where uh, we could enjoy it by making fun of it in an ironic, douchey, MTV-ish kind of fashion. Probably, you know, nothing against the Kelly Williams. I just don't like fucking Scream. But, uh, and <laughs> it, it's not, but it, remember, it was uh, Sixth Sense where it was classy enough that we kind of circled back around to the idea that someone like a Kubrick or uh, we could get a film like The Exorcist, which is very clearly a movie made by and for adults. Horror had become such a, a pariah by that extension that they had to start, just call it a supernatural thriller, just a signal to the audience, no, this isn't murder boner material for acne-ridden weirdos. Well, John, I, I do think there's an, another interesting distinction between Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, which you sort of mentioned earlier, is that Jason's, his motivation, certainly for most of it, you know, is stems from his connection to his mother, his love for his mother, his desire to sort of avenge her death in some way, uh, you know, to the point of sort of hallucinating her uh, in, in ways that motivates his violence. Michael Myers, again, starting really with the second one, although certainly it stems from the first one as well, it really is him trying to sever his connection to his family. He wants to have no part, uh, no no thing, no connection to this world left. He's uh, destroying his humanity. Loomis mentions that the soul has gone out of him. And now something has has come to fill that void, and we can say it's evil personified. And perhaps uh, that evil has a motivation, which is to sever any remaining strands of humanity to this human vessel that it's possessed. And after that, it can be freer, more comfortable. I'm not. I'm not absolutely sure. What's the underlying backstory or under the surface truth of this series? And I think that what we're getting at in a way, is that this is like The Exorcist. And that in some way, it's analogous in the sense that there is an evil that has climbed into this person 
with, you know, relatives, you know, with uh, a sister, and, oh, two sisters, and parents, and uh, a niece now, and a neighborhood, and a town, and who's connected to all of those things, and who just systematically begins to sever those connections and try attempt to destroy everyone around him. But I do, I do think it's just really interesting that, like, what is the... We never get the voice behind Michael. He never, I, I don't think, I mean, uh, he never speaks. We never, we never get to communicate with the evil. We never get a real clue into its thought process. And I think that there's something really fascinating and mysterious in, in the way that the less you understand something, the more intriguing it can be about this, this evil, because it, it very much has all the hallmarks of possession where it just takes over and it's, there's nothing every it's, it's just systematically expunging. Even the shreds of humanity there remain within whatever passes for a brain that he has left. Yeah. It's not like there's a personality, like the demon that gets into Regan. It's just a, a, a black void. Uh, it's a soullessness. It's just there. And it, it's going through, it, it's compelling its host to sever humanity, uh, not out of you know some master plan that it cackles over. It's uh, almost it's like an amoeba. It's just it's just in this very gut level. Because that's the thing is, and, and frequently in these movies, it's uh, oh he found out he's got a sister, so he's coming to kill her. Oh he found out he's got a niece, he's coming to kill her. And the movies never say why. They just automatically assume that you just get it that well of course he's going to want to kill his sister why I, just because and he, even if he murders everybody with whom he has any kind of Myers bloodline connection he'll still keep coming back to the Haddonfield because that's still a source of humanity in, in a sense because that's where he grew up people know who he is blah 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 so yeah until Haddonfield is an, an empty ghost town ruin never will Michael Myers cease well, and it also explains, I mean, the the connection that he has to the mask that he chooses. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's the strongest sort of iconography that we associate with Michael Myers is that mask. Well, what is it? It's a featureless white mask. Like, it, it robs him of humanity when it's worn properly so that it doesn't bow out at the edges and <laughs> make him <look> back. <laughs> uh, you know. It doesn't have the elegance of a hockey mask. Ben Tramer looks scarier in that mask than this guy looks in <laughs> some, some of these scenes. But it does. I mean, the, the mask fits right in with that, with that theory of Michael Myers as a character, that he's if you're trying to destroy your humanity, well, that mask goes a long way toward it. We all know that William Shatner, when he was a child, the soul drained out of him. It was replaced by nothing but pure evil. And he was <laughs> so it's channeling William Shatner's inherent wickedness. I think it's kind of funny that this is the mask of like this raconteur, ladies man, ageless, you know, charming, hedonistic Lothario is the guy that they, they, they cast the soulless killer's mask from, you know? <laughs> Funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to base this mask off of again the William Shatner mask to uh, again to bring it back to the original la la la, and they ordered a bunch of them and they showed up and they were like pink and the hair was blonde, so they had to repaint the entire thing. But there there are at least one shot where you can see oh when he throws Loomis through that window 
the hair is blonde. The hair is blonde on the mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, they just grabbed one really fast and threw it on the actor, and that was it. Apparently, they had <laughs> problems with the mask, and apparently, they did not just you know have the the original mask or masks from the first two films. I'm not sure. You know, yeah. if, if they gave them to the actors or the actors made off with them or whatever happened. No, yeah, I really I, like Bandage Head, Bandage Head Michael Myers. I, I was really sad to see him go and get replaced by doughy plastic sack over the head Michael Myers. Um, I I believe that Deborah Hill gave the mask after the second one, gave it to the actor that played him. I don't remember who it was. Right. And Take told him, you can, she told him, you can keep this because we're done with Michael Myers. That's right. That's right. Because she <laughs> thought that they were going to just change it up at every movie from there. Exactly. Little did she know she wouldn't even be associated with the series after after uh, season of the witch. After this sequence, we we get back to Loomis. Uh, well, actually, I, I want mm-hmm. I want to dwell on on the sequence just momentarily because uh, I, I noticed that the the girl uh, explains to her mother that she doesn't want to be an winker. Mm-hmm. She is uh, on a diet because she doesn't want to be an winker. And then the actual the food that we see her eat is basically a Kaiser roll slathered in butter. I, I don't think the ketogenic diet had been known earlier. Mike, uh, you and I both lived in the Midwest in 1988. I mean, like, yeah. I think my idea of health food in 1988 was like the uh, the fat free Cool Ranch Doritos. Yeah, 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 exactly. She's like, no, I'm on a diet. I'm not I'm not going to eat those terrible eggs that you are preparing. I am instead going to eat this buttered roll, in and fact, that will like, <laughs> main, main, maintain my svelte Midwestern figure. The, uh, the, the idea of uh, – I just remembered the first chips that were quote-unquote diet chips had a lestra in them, and they oh, gave people yeah. diarrhea. So they we really – They didn't. call it anal leakage. Yeah, we did not have a handle on on this kind of thing back in 1988. <laughs> when I when I worked at a video store, we used to sell those chips, and every time somebody brought them to the counter, I turned it over and I was like, "You should read this before you buy them." And only once did somebody read it and go, "Yeah, I'll take it anyway." <laughs> <laughs> wow, what does that say about your video store customer? They're they're like, eh, a little more anal leakage isn't going to kill me. <laughs> Not, I, I hope I didn't outwardly shudder, but I shuddered, <laughs> shuddered internally, yes. Wow. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the scene now. She's taking a knife and spreading cream cheese onto a Kaiser roll. That is her diet, that is her diet breakfast. She doesn't want to be an oinker. Back to Michael for a, a second here um, and, and, and the, the Jason comparison. I, I think that in the first Halloween and in most of the Friday the 13th movies, you have the sense that they're wary of the big and overt gesture. So they kind of instinctively pick off the weakest members of the pack before ultimately going mano y mano with whoever the alpha or alphas are because he is the lone wolf that will never be the alpha male, will never be able to lead the pack, but he, he will haunt them because he desires to dominate. He desires to be a part of them, but he knows that the only way to do so is to kill his own potential followers because he's too damaged to be a leader, but yet he's magnetically attracted to the pack, the herd, the society he cannot function in. And that resentment leads him to violence for violence is his only way of expressing himself. That's kind of the MO of the slasher. And this character, by this point in the series, 
Michael is um, even more ballsy, for a lack of a better term, and he's just more like a... I think you said the Terminator, Mike, and I, I think that, yeah, we're, we always get there with these guys eventually, and I think he's in Terminator mode by now. With both Jason and Michael, we, we established that they're strong, they're indestructible, they're basically supervillains. And Freddy Krueger isn't strong, but he is uh, relatively indestructible, and he's also got evil magical powers that makes him creepy. And what we forget is in the first movie, he was supposed to, you know, he wasn't supposed to be funny at all. He was supposed to be a really frightening guy. And lest we forget, he was also a child molester. When we were like, yay, Freddy Krueger, yeah, stab her, yeah, she's got it coming. It's like we're rooting for a murderous child molester is exactly what we're doing. You know, and they never really do anything with that. And, you know, I don't want to look. I don't know if you guys saw the Kevin Bacon child molester movie, but I think there would be a way. The Woodsman, yes. and that's the second. That's the second time you've brought this this movie up in the course of this podcast. <laughs> this podcast, like today? Yeah, uh, no, not oh, today, but okay. uh, in the course of the Halloween podcast. Oh, I don't even remember bringing it up before, but I don't know why I would. But but the point that I'm making that's funny is you don't that, know why um, you Woodsman. Well, uh, <laughs> um. <laughs> Like, I would like to see a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie that, obviously, without showing anything, but would actually, like, have that, the horror of that, like, to really have it sink in with the audience, that that's they actually what... They carved that aspect out a little more in the remake. In the original film, it's just kind of really lightly touched on under credits, almost. Very, or, no, when, when his history comes out. It's very, very lightly touched, but they bring that out in the Haley Joel... <laughs> you were going to say Haley Joel Osment. I was. I, I caught myself. Uh, uh, the fucking guy who played... I think it was the scene where Haley Joel Osment hit Nancy Kerrigan in the knee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. By the way, uh, I, Tanya is awesome, if uh, anyone hasn't seen it. I haven't seen it. I, I just watched Annihilation, and uh, I, I, I can't even describe how much I loved it. Dude, me too, man. Okay. Anyway, so return to Loomis, and we have the unctuous doctor, and he's typing up uh, Michael Myers' middle initial, which is M. <laughs> it, it would be funny if, if, if his middle name was Michael Myers. It's, it's Michael. It's just all one word. It's Michael Michael Myers Myers. <laughs> uh, we get this burn scar here, and there's a couple notable things uh, as we see how Loomis uh, made it through that giant explosion in the last time we saw him. Now, A, it's hilarious that the the extent to the apparent damage. Now, he does have a cane, so there's implied um, other, you know, under-the-clothes damage. But the visible damage from this giant explosion that um, should have immolated his body completely is that he has this one burn on his cheek. And in this sequence, it's very obviously like... A button is what the director called it in the um, commentary. And it looks like, yeah, it's like he was, you know, leaning on, on one of those tanks when it exploded or whatever. And then later the scar is much subtler. Yeah, so in an interview with the screenwriter, he wanted two scenes that he didn't get. Uh, he wanted to open with kind of a, a revisionist version of the end of two in which uh, we see Loomis kind of thrown away from the blast to imply that, yeah, he's damaged, but he wasn't at ground zero. Oh, so, so he's speak. thrown clear. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that would have been the helpful. They, yeah, the other thing we wanted to do was to set that house on fire while they're climbing around on the roof. And uh, twice uh, the screenwriter had to be told, "No, we can't set shit on fire. We just don't have the budget for it." So, <laughs> but he really wanted to blow shit. He, he wanted to blow up even more shit in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I actually kind of appreciated that. Like, I I know that Michael Myers is coming back, and I know you're gonna bring. Dr. Loomis back, like, don't, you don't have to twist yourself into narrative pretzels to, uh, to explain it. You know what I mean? It's, you see him being flung out of the way and he didn't get out of the cock car, right? Like, you can't go back and rewrite the scene? What the fuck? Like, no, just let it go. He survived. Fine. Is that a misery, misery reference right there? Yes! Thank oh you! God. Wow, Vic. That was awesome. He gets blown free of the cock blast and he lands on his dirty pillows. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, uh, this we hear that Michael Myers was a federal prisoner and he's subject to federal law. And again, we have to get um, Loomis telling uh, Hoffman that he's evil on two legs. Evil I found on that two legs. It made me laugh a little bit. He's been he's been having to come up with these kind of poetic references for 10 years. Like he's really <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point. It would be funny if he had uh, a little notebook that were filled that- <laughs> That, that were filled with them over the course of 15 years, but it got burned in the fire. So now he's got to now he's got to improv a little bit, and they don't always land. He's thinking like they're oh, maybe I, I won't use that one again. So uh, this is where Loomis finds out that, and so does Hoffman, that oh the prisoner transfer didn't go so well. And I do like that Loomis just doesn't need to hear anymore. He just turns on his heel. And leaves, you know, once he knows that uh, something happened. And so he goes to the crime scene. And, and, and this is where, yeah, we get this very elaborate, lots and lots of police and investigators and smoke and whatnot sequence with uh, Hoffman. The administrator has to come along and uh, he's obviously shaken and having to buy into the reality of what Loomis has been saying for 15 years. You know, the one thing I'll say about that whole dynamic is that I do think as a society, we do have a, a, a way of forgetting our history. And it's not a bad cautionary tale to have a, a story where one generation or the next group of people just simply haven't learned the lessons that the last generation did. I think there's there's some un- unfortunate truth to that. I really enjoy this sequence where they go to the, I, I think pro, uh, production did a great job with mm-hmm. this ambulance because uh, they show up and there's a bunch of cops and we have this flipped over ambulance. It's in the water and you look inside and it looks like, you know, it looks like they got thrown through a wood chipper yeah. and the, the, yeah. And it's completely coated in blood. The ambulance is a wreck. And you look at this and you go, Jesus, did this thing get hit by a missile? What happened? And no, Michael Myers happened. So that's who we're talking about. And it's under a bridge and it's in a river. I mean, this is great production value. Yeah, it does. It it looks cool. And I like how the scene plays out. But yeah, I I think we can criticize this movie on a lot of levels. Um, But like this is in, in a lot of ways by conventional measures of first-class production. Whereas in the first film, like, Loomis has to go around and be like, ah, he's super dangerous, he's super dangerous. With this one, it's like, you see that ambulance? A guy did that. And here's the best part. We don't see a single corpse. 
in this sequence. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and, that and that's unusual. They, they kind of hand wave it by saying, yeah, everyone got thrown clear or they float away down the water. And I actually like that a lot more. There's a couple times that they keep violence off screen a little bit. I mean, I know we get the thumb going through the forehead, but again, there's three other people in there. And it's like, uh, I mean, they do the same thing with one of the sheriff's deputies later on. And I think there's one or two other kills where you really just don't, you don't see what happens. You see the aftermath. And again, when your imagination starts to fill in those holes, it's actually a little bit scarier than maybe what uh, what might have come out of uh, you know physical production and seeing seeing what actually happened. Well, I agree with that, and I'm reminded of even though like I think for me it works, but the effects in the third one, as we discussed recently, you know where we get just you could call it ultra violence or, you know, mega gore or whatever, where we actually just see eyes popping and faces, you know, ruined, but the effects aren't really first class. Again, I, I think I said it wasn't Tom Savini quality. And so it's like, on one hand, it's like, whoa, but on another, for me, I I'm kind of taken out of it. And, and this film, I think, as you said, Vic, like if it errs on the side of just leaving it into your imagination, well, you can say on the one hand that that's it's defanged or you know it's not a real slasher movie how could it pass on showing us some dead bodies i mean don't we get to see every single dead body possible in the first two halloween movies or any mm-hmm. friday the 13th movie and i think that i'm honestly on some way i'm interpreting this whole mo- whole movie as strangely the kids movie version of a slasher movie but i think it's in a subtle way and for me, that's part of why I like this movie is because it comes damn close to completely pulling that off. It doesn't fully. I don't think it's a classic. I don't, I'm never going to say this is one of the great slasher movies. But I like this movie even more because it doesn't give me a full frontal or boobs or exploding eyeballs or any of just the cheap ways to rack up points in a in a slasher movie like this movie is pretty darn creepy to me with like very very little gore and you know and and none of the tna so it's just like it's just such a non-slasher slasher movie and for me that's endearing well i'm reminded of there's one kill in part six where uh, there's that cute girl with the glasses and Jason catches up with her in a cabin and we, we don't see him actually do what he does to her. We just see her get thrown up against a window and then pulled back. And it's only later that the characters go in there and it looks like it's doused mm-hmm. in blood. And that's mostly, that's kind of a fun, lighthearted, almost goofy horror comedy. But that beat was honestly creepy for what it doesn't show you. Yes, again, the insinuation. I believe that's what triggered the uh, the some of our bear jokes. <laughs> <laughs> when in a, in a traditional slasher film do you get to, do, does the film make the point that sometimes less is more? Mm-hmm. That's, a, yeah, that's, that's not a, a slasher trope. movie trope. Exactly. Exactly. Well, John, the, the irony is you, you were complaining about the lack of gore in the first one. You you came away from that film, I, I recall. Uh, you were disappointed in the fact that it's oddly toothless. It, it doesn't really check that box very significantly. But well, I think that great. the reason – I think that's a valid uh, point to bring up. But I think that like in every other way, this is a very conventional slasher movie. 
and the mm-hmm. fact that like that's the one element that they they try to play it as coy as possible where like if you're not really paying attention you might walk out of here I mean, you could say like with Texas Chainsaw or Jaws, but obviously it's not that good. But where you're like, oh, yeah, it was a bloodbath. And then you're like, oh, well, actually, I barely saw the shark or actually how much blood was in Texas Chainsaw. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's almost playing that game. Whereas I just I, I wanted to point out with Halloween that like it's. So much long, long buildup, and now she's walking back to the laundry room, and uh, oh, he's going around the the block again in his car. But like, there's almost no payoff on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it stood out, but I, I have, obviously I think the first one is a better movie than this. But I just think that this movie is like really having its cake and eating it too in a way that almost completely works. Hmm. All right. In terms of gore and, sure. and and also like the TNA where we have like a amazing cut later where the sheriff's daughter, the one, you know, true obvious model in this picture is taking Cops off do her, it by the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's Cops wearing, do it by the book. She's wearing a t-shirt that says Cops do it by the book and she takes it <laughs> off and you like just almost get bare boobs, but, but not. And yet it's like, I think it was just timed and shot perfectly where, you know, it's it's 80% as good. And I just think that this movie manages to walk that line where it, it delivers 80% as good. And yet you could probably air this movie uncut on television for the most part. Yeah, yeah. If you were to make the gentle trims of, ironically enough, the stuff that they uh, shot later. Yeah. Uh, like thumb through the head. Yeah, you could put this on TV almost pretty easily. Yeah, and I guess that's maybe why Vic sees it on AMC all the time. Loomis goes to the gas station after uh, Michael has uh, – we, we, we get the strong insinuation that he's killed a, a mechanic working under a car and then Loomis yeah. finds a body. The insinuation is made when Michael Myers shows up and raises a crowbar and slams it down off screen. Mm. Yeah, the screwdriver said that they want to have it shoved down his throat but they decide not to. Exactly what you are just talking about mm-hmm. is they, they want the implication. The implication. But we so. do get a corpse here, um, and it's it's pretty good. You know, this this corpse like almost in a cenobite sort of scenario where he's dangling from, he's wrapped up in chains and you know kind of floating in the air because Michael has uh, rigged one of his more signature sort of body drop traps that you know he has in common with Jason. Uh, the staging of corpses. Well. He- yeah, it's the only time in this movie that he uh, creates one of his little tableaus. Mm-hmm. I will say this is probably my favorite sequence in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, as I mentioned, I find the bandaged head Michael Myers, not only the stuntman who's playing him, but also just the look at this character at the stage, way more interesting and way more frightening. And I, I like the kind of desolate, almost like it, it's it's almost reminiscent of the Hitcher. The fact mm-hmm. that it, you know he's showing up at you know a mechanic in a diner, it's this little island of civilization in the vast sea of corn, and it really captures that weird desolation of the Midwest. Where I, I mean, at first I was kind of rolling my eyes at the coincidence that Loomis shows up at the same place at the same time that Mike, Michael Myers is there, but it actually plays because it's like there's nowhere else for him to have gone. Yeah, uh, you know, if, if he wants to get clothes. 
And I was also rolling my eyes a little bit. Uh, they were obviously looking for a way to fully complete the character. So not only does he have to steal the mask later, but he has to stop at mechanics place first so he can get the coveralls and be exactly Michael Myers in the first two movies. But, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I, as you just said, like it's a it's one of the few outposts on a desolate road. It's the first civilization that you would encounter as you, yeah. you know, like the the path that Loomis is retracing takes you to this place. It's the creepy aspect of the Midwest. And, and also it's reminiscent of, again, it's circling back to the idea that this is a Western in yeah. some ways. That, of course, you, you have the, the trading post. Of course you're going to go to the trading post because there's nothing else to go to. It's civilized, a waitress and a diner and a mechanic shop and telephones. But really, at the end of the day, it's like maybe three or four people and they are easily massacred by a monster, you know, on the caliber of Michael Myers. So yeah, I like that after he finds the, the body suspended in the air of the mechanic, then he sees, uh, the, the waitress and he goes, God in heaven. And like, mm-hmm. even, even somehow as jaded as he is like just the, the putting together that this is actually yeah, a full massacre even affects Loomis here. That's, I was going to say what, what this made me think of was actually the opening of uh, Children of the Corn. As mm-hmm. you pan over, you know, again, this kind of desolation of the one place in the middle of, of all this corn. Uh, and you pan over, I distinctly remember the diner and everybody's dead in there. And that's what you get is the dawning realization from Loomis of how utterly uh, isolated he he's become. You think that there's going to be people there, but that guy's dead. And then he goes into the diner and he's looking for help. And they're all dead. And then he goes to the phone and the phone is disconnected. Mm-hmm. Then Michael's there. And that, you know what I mean? Now you, you, I mean, that's a mini horror movie all by itself is about you becoming the person alone in, in the isolated place with, you know, whatever the malevolent force is. I love that he just slowly turns from that phone, yeah. realizing that Michael has had the, had the presence of mind to disconnect the, the phone cord. And even as he just begins to turn from it, he, he knows that Michael is watching him. I like the kind of showdowny aspect of the shots that put together the two characters looking at each other. And the sequence also shows me two things. They have both upgraded in the past 10 years. Loomis has upgraded from a shitty little snub nose revolver to a giant silver automatic that he keeps on his person at all times. And Michael Myers has upgraded because he's spent all of his experience points to learn the skill of slasher teleportation. <laughs> because, <laughs> because he teleports not once, not twice, but three times in this film. And the first time is when Loomis draws down on him and opens fire. And Michael is just, we don't see him leave frame. He's just kind of not there anymore. It is perhaps the most overt example of slasher teleportation that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I understand that we don't want to take away from the kind of Frankenstein-y monolithic aspect of the character by giving the audience shots of him like diving for cover like John McClane. But on the other hand, he's the fact that he's just not there between the moment when the bullet leaves the gun and the bullet arrives where he's standing. It's uh, I'm like, okay, all right. We're in this place now. Yes, he he now has slasher teleportation skills. Well, I love that, and yeah, obviously that is in the slasher playbook as one of the one of the level ups that you can definitely get to. Um, yep. And and there is a very surreal quality to, to this encounter that I think helps sell it. 
you know, we're not grounded here at all, folks. Yeah, this sequence is only slightly more grounded than the dream sequence with the girl. Yeah, I mean, it's like, weird. this, this yeah. is more like a John Woo scene than a uh, gritty, you know, confrontation. I kept thinking of the Hitcher while I was watching this. Mm-hmm. On top of that, he also jumps into a tow truck. One would expect that if they want to soft reboot the first movie, that he would jump into Loomis's government-issued boring mobile and take off with the giant seal of the state of Illinois on the side. But instead, he grabs the tow truck. And now he's a giant malevolent man in a giant malevolent vehicle. And but he ducks over a thing, and there's an explosion. There's sparks. There's power. We Again, the Hitcher, a movie that exists in that a really hazy area between action and horror. Ordinarily, you see action horror, where it's like people with machine guns like striking cool poses while they shoot zombies. But much, much, much more rarely do we see horror action, where it's basically a horror movie, but has some a- enough action elements that it blurs a line. I mean, this is one of the first times we see Loomis try to reach Michael and try, you know what I mean? He tries to interact with him and says, you know, don't, don't do it. Don't go to Hatton, Haddonfield, go to Cleveland, Michael. Why, why, why for one, I like the beat that you're describing, but I don't know why for one microsecond Loomis would think that that would be successful at all. I don't think he does, but I think, I mean, a, I think he's probably, again, he's hoping to get the jump on him with the gun. And they have this existing relationship. He's hoping he can draw on Michael for a moment of letting his guard down enough that he can, I guess, shoot him six more times. I think that uh, is, I think I'm going to optimistically say, because that struck me the same way, that he's not actually thinking that he can just sacrifice himself and then Michael will go to Boca Raton and and play bingo or something. (laughs) Like, I think he's just trying to lure him in so that he can shoot him with his bigger gun. (laughs) But it it is still, again, but it is still drawing, it's a scene that draws on the connection that Loomis has to Michael. Maybe Michael knows him. Maybe Michael recognizes him. Maybe this interaction, his words can have some effect on him. They don't. But that notion starts to put something inside of Michael that, I th- again, I think it's fleshed out a little bit more the further we get into the series. Why doesn't Michael kill him right here? Realistically, I don't think Michael is in any way thinking, oh, well, he's got a, a gun. I, I should probably leave. Like, I think we, we could, you know, we probably should ascribe some motivation to why, why Michael's reaction to this encounter is to say, see ya. Circling back to the first one, there is that moment where at the very end when Michael's at the top of that stairs that Loomis calls out to him and he reacts to his own name. That's the only shred of of humanity that we see out of that character in the entire thing. And I wonder if that doesn't connect with the idea of what we're talking about a little bit earlier, where there is still an element of humanity and the evil is trying to destroy it, however tenuous it may be. So, Well, I mean, I think that if we're talking about, like, what are the motivations of the evil and not the man, whatever shred of humanity is left in Michael, my easy interpretation superficially is that the shred of humanity in Michael would prevent him from killing Jamie, for instance, you know, where he's just more, uh, on some level, there's a duality or a war within him between wanting to kill her and just wanting to, like, maybe she can bring him back or, you know, like, remind him or reconnect with his humanity. And so there might be an inner conflict. I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's going on to a degree. But with Loomis, it's a, a lot harder 
to come up with a reason uh, why he would not just, you know, get rid of this somewhat thorn in his side, right? Like this definite antagonist to what Michael is trying to do. And Mm -hmm. I I think that when you start to think of it evilly, I think that you actually have to look for the cruelty in that. And I think you Mm -hmm. have to look, and we've referenced before, the sort of ineptitude of of Loomis and how (laughs) in some ways it's actually more cruel to have one guy out there who completely knows what you're doing and is utterly powerless to stop you. Like, I actually think there is sort of a sadistic payoff in keeping Loomis alive because mm. he knows and he infects the other authority figures here mm-hmm. with this knowledge that they cannot protect their most vulnerable, that those people will have to fend for themselves against the, the vile foxes in their hen house. That's going on in all slasher movies, but definitely here, these patriarchal sheriff characters, townsfolk in general, even the parents are impotent and the kids have to save themselves. And obviously, looking under the hood, it's an empowering message to the young people who are the audience for these films. But let's also say that Loomis sort of embodies that where he has the worst of both worlds. Not only is he not spared the ignorance's bliss of one of these drunk parents or, you know, cynical cops who doesn't believe until too late that anything is going on, fully knowing what is happening. Like, with full awareness, he is completely incapable of saving people. We have to figure it out through Michael's actions rather than his words, because he's not the joker. He's not going to articulate... Batman, I'm never going to kill you because you're too much fun. It could easily murder Loomis at any moment, and he never does. Does something in him want to have uh, a witness, an author, someone who can tell the story, someone who knows who he is and what he's doing? Does he appreciate that? Does he need it? That's kind of spot on because, John, the the distinction that I draw between Loomis and Jamie and even Laurie is that Michael doesn't know them. Now, I understand, again, the motivations behind why he wants to kill them, or at least I can fill in the blankness and I can attribute something to him that explains why he's trying to kill those parts of his humanity. But at the end of the day, he's never laid eyes on Jamie. He didn't know she existed until they brought it up in the ambulance. But here in Loomis is someone that he interacted with for years. I mean, this is the closest thing he has to a friend, the closest to anyone who will ever understand him. So yeah, Mike, when you talked about does he want to witness, it reminded me of the discussion we had about the closing scene in the first one where he's created this display with his sister's headstone and with the body strewn out on the bed and stuff. And did he do that for himself or did he do that because he wanted someone to see it? He wanted there to be a witness. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. I wonder. I wonder if that's if that's something that we can that we that we'll, we'll be able to tease out again further. Probably less so in this movie, but I wonder in the in the series as it moves forward. Yeah, the posing of Annie's body was not for Jamie Lee Curtis. It was for Loomis for when he knew Loomis would eventually catch up with his trail of victims. Just so happened that Laurie Strode happened to find it first. Well, yeah, I, I think that. Like, I think we're in agreement that Loomis serves a function, but I guess what I'm saying, you know, sort of disagreeing with you, Vic, is that I don't think there's any connection between them. I don't, I, I really, 
I think that like if I was a writer of this any of these films, like if I wanted to in any way insinuate that that was my uh, intention, I think that there would be you know a moment of connection between them somewhere along the line. Whereas you know Loomis hates him with a passion to the extent that Michael feels passion. It's the other way. It's it's not like there's a conflict or a sort of ambivalence about whether he wants to sever this human connection. I, I, I think that it's purely sadistic and cruel thing that he wants to punish the, this man. And this man doesn't deserve to get off so easy as to be murdered. Instead, he will have to trail along a few steps behind, haplessly unable to prevent the horrors that cause... Each, each new tableau causes more psychic pain to this man and that's really the the cruelest thing that michael can do to him this is michael's punishment for being his jailer for 15 mm-hmm. years is to uh psychically torment him exactly. well john as per usual you're completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> well i want to point out going back to the scene the absurd uh fact that there are like a dozen pictures of abraham lincoln i noticed on that one wall i suppose that's to underline the idea that we're in the land of lincoln that it's in illinois in fact when Loomis stops and he turns and he sees michael uh, framed in that doorway leading to the kitchen we reverse and there's a giant pink framed picture of Abraham Lincoln in the same frame right next to Loomis. It's it's not only a picture of Lincoln, it's all he's also beatifully grinning. There were also some weird pencil sketches. Like there's photos of Lincoln on one side and then these weird you know, yeah. pencil uh, sketches yeah, on the other side. Yeah, caricature type things. I would have to guess of uh they don't look like celebrities. So I would have to guess it's the kind of thing that you do for the owners or regulars. My first uh, thought from like a, a distance, like 10 feet away from the screen was that, you know, it's 1988 is, is that uh, Ronald Reagan, but I, I, mm. I couldn't really get a good look at it. The woman who's pictured in those caricatures is actually a little nightmarish. She looks like an evil clown. It's weird. Oh, I did uh, kind of get a clown. Yeah. Yeah. From one of them. Yeah. It's just such an interesting eccentric frame to compose you know have this this standoff and then you just put that very conspicuously in the background the idea was that they're going to make this kitschy we have the wood paneling Uh, but that feels more authentic to me like you could have like really laid on a lot of uh cliches in the production design (laughs) and art direction you know where we've all seen a million uh bad horror movie gas stations and diners right and this yeah. actually felt more real to me. Like those weird details actually feel more uh, idiosyncratic and thus real. Here's the interesting detail because now I'm looking at the reverse. Oh, they're having a special for a hot barbecue sandwich for two ninety five. <laughs> Only sure. this podcast will tell you what hot barbecue sandwiches. Try we're going to for. avoid. There's a sign that says <laughs> try to avoid using ten dollars worth of time on a ten cent problem. Which is good Ooh. advice, uh, which I'm not eating right now. Oh, their cigarettes cost $2.50. And, oh, here's the weirdest thing. The absolutely weirdest thing about this entire frame is there is a set of steak knives on the right-hand side that Michael Myers has decided to completely ignore. Not only is this a set of steak knives, but also the box that they came in. And there's a big pink rooster, a stuffed rooster, on top of the steak knives. Wow. 
Wow. Mike, I think Michael either goes for giant butcher knives or tiny scalpels. Steak knife is really, that's, that's just not distinctive enough for him. Yeah, well, it, it is funny. Later on, he absurdly finds a set, a set of kitchen knives in the attic. The reason he doesn't have the, the steak knives is he doesn't have the good leads. He doesn't have the Glengarry leads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First place is a Cadillac. Yeah. Second place is a set of steak knives. Third place is you get murdered by Michael Myers <laughs> with, a, with, with a thumb through the forehead. Yeah. Coffee's for closers, Michael. <laughs> Hot barbecue sandwiches are for closers. And that's yeah. like, You know who's a closer? Abraham Lincoln. See, I like that, the texture of this movie. The, the fact that you can pick those things out, uh, that's the kind of thing that I... I see in this movie and I know it's not amazing and it feels like a TV movie in a lot of ways. And I can't tell you you're crazy about anything negative that you want to say about it. I'm not going to, you know, get out the pitchforks and torches and, you know, storm the, the, the castle of anyone who doesn't like this movie. But I just, I think that there's just a weird combination of cut above choices, like above the line and below the line that just make it kind of surprisingly good, kind of in a weird way. Like, I don't, this is totally random, but you know how Cameron's closet feels like a Canadian television show and yet dot, dot, dot. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just some things about it that are batshit nuts and just make it special. That's kind of how I feel about this movie, even though batshit nuts isn't a term that I would use. The proper metaphor is not pitchforks and torches. The proper metaphor is I'm not going to get a bunch of rednecks with shotguns and go around shooting random teenagers. (laughs) I love it when they're like, oh, shit, that's, you know, whatever the guy's name was. Oh, well. Yeah, Yeah, it's funny that they don't show his body when that happens. Uh, It feels like that scene is either missing a shot or else they got the shot and decided not to use it because it would have been too much, quote unquote, or... But But uh, isn't that what this movie's all about, is not showing that, you know? Like, that's a consistent, consistent choice, in a way. I do like that when Michael Myers flees the scene, he uh, activates his coincidence armor to not only blow up Loomis's car, but also to blow up the, uh, the telephone pole that's right next to it. It doesn't sever local calls that severs long distance calls. He so, cut the phone in the actual diner and now he's going to, after this, I believe the next time we see him, he goes to uh, more or less knock out the electricity grid. Cause I don't know unless he just happens to be strolling through there, but yeah. he, he also cuts the power. And that's something that uh, Jason never cut the power for the whole town. Um, uh yeah for the whole town town. yeah yeah never for the whole town we we, we see him repeatedly yank the power supply out for but just for like cabins and shit like that yeah 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 yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. he destroyed a whole space station so those people were without power (laughs) (laughs) he reprogrammed the navigation computer i don't know if you remember that deleted scene Cameron's closet was a super deep fucking cut. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I just randomly remember Mike and I seeing that together, like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And I, I'd seen it, you know, in the, in the 80s. But I, I just remember having, like, a, a strong, clear take on it that, you know, production values were extremely professional but TV grade. And yet, like, the movie just made weird choices that elevated it into a a trippy, almost Lovecraftian or Stuart Gordon kind of a film. And it doesn't have that pedigree at all as far as the filmmakers or the, or the uh, the writer. But just like, I think that in some weird way, this movie is a little bit analogous in that to me, 
the the sum of its parts sort of exceed you know the individual components. It's 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 interesting. Cameron's closet contains one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in cinema. <laughs> the intense frustration of the stepdad. Uh, I, I I have no idea why, but that scene is like a bullseye within a bullseye within a bullseye in terms of just shit I find funny. Well, that, that uh, douchey I, I, stepdad is just a piece of work. He's a unique like, – yeah. that's a cliche character. That guy makes it his own and the writing yeah, is but, unique. Yeah, the, the fact that he is – I remember laughing until I stopped making noise. <laughs> where you're just like lying there with tears coming out of your face and you're going, ugh. You go, folks. Go, go find Cameron's closet and uh, check that out. That's uh, yeah. what we can offer you now. Cameron's closet, the Hitcher, and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> Clearly, the obvious films that you would see after <laughs> Halloween Four: The Return of Michael Myers. <laughs> All right, guys. Adios. Talk to you later.